This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 25, Michelle Smith. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches to share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim talks with former U.S. national team softball pitcher and two-time gold medal Olympian Michelle Smith. I think that it's important to control the controllables. I think it's important for coaches to tell kids that there are some things on the field you can control and there are some things on the field you can't control. Michelle shares how she stayed positive and in control through tough moments in competition. Taught to her by her father, control the controllables is a mantra that has helped Michelle excel in difficult times throughout her career. Michelle, I want to start off by introducing you to our responsible sports audience. Michelle Smith grew up in New Jersey where she started playing softball at age five. She attended Voorhees High School in Glen Gardner, New Jersey where she was named All-State in softball each of her four years while setting records for wins, strikeouts, and no-hitters. She went on to play college softball at Oklahoma State University where she was a two-time All-American. Her senior year, she was named State of Oklahoma College Athlete of the Year by USA Today. Playing on the U.S. national team from 1991 to 2002, Michelle won two Olympic gold medals, one at the 96 Games in Atlanta and one in Sydney in 2000. In Sydney, Michelle had a 0.00 earned run average with 37 strikeouts in 27.2 innings. Pretty amazing. She also plays professionally in Japan where she is a seven-time Japanese Pro League champion and MVP. She was named to the U.S. Olympic Committee Sportswoman of the Year in both 1993 and 94, and she was inducted into the ASA Softball Hall of Fame in 2006. Michelle now serves as a softball analyst for ESPN. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. I was surprised to learn that you did not start pitching until you were 15. Uh, is, Is that pretty late for elite pitchers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most pitchers nowadays start when they're eight, nine, ten years old. So the fact that I started at fifteen was um, was considered and is considered very late. Um, I had to do a lot of homework, I guess you could say, though, <laughs> because I did start so late. And uh, you know, and I think there was actually a lot of people would consider that a disadvantage. And in some ways, I actually considered it an advantage because. Um, I had the extra, you know, four, five, six years to really hone my athletic abilities uh, all the way around because I think it's more about developing um, a well-rounded athlete um, physically, mentally, emotionally, not just, um, uh, you know, always focusing on one, one part of the game. And I think a lot of times when you start the kids too young, you, you have um, at, at times the potential for those kids to either get burnout or to um, – to be so lopsided or one-dimensional that uh, they don't get to, to really hone their overall athletic skills. So the fact that I started later, I think, was an advantage in that area. Well, um, I want to come back to that in a second, but you also uh, you also played basketball and field hockey. 
Yes, I did. I um, I played field hockey just starting in high school. I, I didn't play that um, prior to high school, and I basically wanted to play a fall sport to keep myself in shape uh, to be ready for my basketball and softball season. So uh, I started playing field hockey my freshman year in high school and worked very hard at that sport, which was a lot of running, a lot of conditioning. Uh, it's a great team sport, uh, not very well understood, but a very, very fun sport, and that obviously kept me in good shape for basketball. And basketball was probably my first love. I really enjoyed the, the game of, fat, of basketball, but at uh, at five foot eleven, I ended up having to play underneath. I was just big enough to be a post. Uh, I was probably better suited to be a shooting guard, but I had to <laughs> I had to um, basically try and be as big and as tall as I could and compete against a lot of women that were, were quite a bit taller than me. But, uh, but basketball was my first love. You know, um, what strikes me about the basketball your basketball story is we, I, I feel like our whole society is in a win-at-all-cost mentality. And rather than, you know, you, have, you can have coaches who are so concerned about winning that, um, you know, a 5'11 five, five person um, in high school, oh, we got to make you a... a a big player when uh, if, if you're going to go on and play in college or the professionally um, so I, I guess it just seems like the well-roundedness of learning to play the game and not just being stereotyped because you're you're tall into one position seems so important a lot of people a lot of coaches parents are so focused on the end result instead of the journey whereas you if you'd look at the athlete and ask, ask the athlete okay what's best suited for them over the potential of their career, then maybe you make different decisions than when you're just very short-sighted and say, okay, what does it take to win this game and then maybe to win the conference and to hopefully make states. So, yeah, I, I think that that's exactly what happened to me in, in the basketball arena is that uh, I was better suited to probably play other positions, but because of uh, where they wanted the team to go and the immediate success that they wanted, uh, they put me into a position that probably um, – wasn't as well suited for me personally, but um, but it was for the team, and that's where there's I, I think a lot of um, you know management comes in is that what's good for the team, what's good for the individual athletes, and there's got to be a a balance between both of those things. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think I made the right decision to, con- to go on to college and, and play softball instead of basketball, but um, you know maybe the fact that basketball was my first love was because it was just simply at a youth level it seemed a little bit more challenging Um, obviously once I really got into the upper um, divisions of softball where it really became challenging or I was against athletes that I was uh, able to compete with or that really challenged me then I think my my love for the sport continued to grow exponentially. That challenge was always important for you? Yeah, definitely. I think that in order to to stay in a growth mode, you have to be challenged. I think that success can breed complacency if you're, you know, if if you're in a situation where uh, things become routine. And I think the challenge in everyday life, the challenge in all areas of uh, sport, uh, personal growth is is really important. And uh, you know, I like to tell kids that it's it's the journey it's not always the destination you have to be focused on what you're doing not just uh uh not just where you you want to end up or where where you want to be but it's you know where you're at and how you're going to get to that spot where you want to be and um and you know and i think that's the complexity of youth sports nowadays and when i do speak to younger athletes i try to simplify it and ba- basically bring it down to one point which is softball is what i do it's not who i am uh, and unfortunately, I think a lot of kids mix that up, um, and so they end up focusing on the wrong things. But you know, if you view yourself as a as a person first and as an athlete second, then I think it's easier to make better decisions on everything in life. You know, you you talked about what's good for the team. You know, the scoreboard right then. What's good for the athlete? 
Um, the, the program that Positive Coaching Alliance is working with Liberty Mutual on responsible sports, we talk about coaches having two goals. One goal is, is winning on the scoreboard. The other is life lessons that can make you a better person. And I, you, know, you, you said it really nicely about if you're thinking about what's good for the athlete, you might take a different, uh, make a different decision. If we're also looking at what's good for our society in terms of the kind of citizens we're turning out with sports, you might make different decisions as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a huge part of it. And, um, you know, I, I think that my main goal a lot of times when I'm working with kids or working with, with coaches and, and parents that are going to be coaching their teams is I think our first goal ultimately needs to be uh, for the kids to fall in love with the sport or sport in general, no matter what that sport is, because then they're going to stay involved. They're going to, they're, they're going to have such a great time that then when they grow up to become parents, they're going to want their kids to be involved. And I think nowadays, if you look at the statistics, a lot of kids end up quitting sports because they just find, A, that it's, it's not fun because there's so much pressure pressure put on them to win, um, or B, there's just too much uh, peer pressure because of the results. You know, they're, they're, it's the whole fear of failure thing. So I think that what needs to really come back, the focus that really needs to come back is that um, we need the kids to fall in love with sport and being active. And, and I think that that would curb a lot of problems in society today, everything from um, health risk and obesity and um, just the fact that we're becoming a more sedentary society. If we can get kids to really enjoy moving and, and being active instead of just being sedentary, I think it, it solves a lot of problems all at once. You know, I, I love that. <clears throat> um, f the goal, first goal being for the, a kid to fall in love with the sport. Um, we, we, we've talked before about, you know, the, um, the test of a good coach is that every kid comes back to play that sport again the next year. But I like the way you said it better. The goal is to make them fall in love with sport. And then a whole bunch of things happen that... Yes. You mentioned fear of failure. How do, how do you deal with fear of failure when, when you're uh, in a really tough situation and the stakes are really high? Yeah, you know, I think the big thing is is that we view failure as um, inadequacy, not reaching our goals, all these things that are, are really incorrect. I view failure as success in the sense that I know that if, I'm, if I am in a situation where things aren't always turning out the way I want to, I'm pushing myself to the limit, I'm learning, I'm exploring, and I'm going to learn I'm going to learn more from those setbacks than I am from just, again, being successful and becoming complacent. So whenever I'm trying anything new, I always try to push myself to the point where I'm um, continually learning. So I view those setbacks as learning experiences, not as failure. Um, so I think that, you know, again, when I, when I, what I try to tell groups of individuals, whether or not it's um, executives when I'm doing speaking engagements or kids, is that we should, uh, we should learn to run toward adversity, not from it, because adversity is what challenges you in life. It's what brings out the best in you. Um, when you get to that point where you, you feel like you want to quit, that's usually right about when the tide's about to turn, <laughs> and you, you reach that epiphany, aha moment where you figure things out, and you don't really get to that point in your life in anything uh, until you're at that moment, that make or break moment. So, you know, for me, a lot of times it really comes down to embracing adversity, embracing setbacks, and realizing that those are the very things that make you not good, but they make you great. So are, are you a motivational speaker? Because you got me really motivated right now. <laughs> well, I try to be. And, I, you know, I, I've had a lot of time in my life where I've, I've had to contemplate or I've had some really good um, talks with myself and said, all right, really, where am I going with this? And, and, and you have to be honest. I mean, you have to really be honest and sit down with yourself and say, all right, are you going to um, – 
you know, for a lack of better words, are you going to man up? Are you going to are you going to face this uh, situation and really just lay it all out there and not be fearful of the consequences? And I feel like every time that I got to that position, um, I realized, wow, you know, I can break through this. And and then when I started to share that with people, it really did start to motivate them. And I thought, you know, I enjoy this. This is this is maybe this is my calling. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I'm like I said, I'm motivated. Um, you know, you were in a pretty nasty car crash in 1986, and um, I mean, I think you know anybody looking at it might have said, "Well, that, that she had a great career, but it's over now." But you came back. Can you talk about that whole experience? Yeah, it was. Um at the time, as a 19-year-old, it, w- it was tough. I, you know, didn't think I would ever pitch again. The doctors, there was so much damage to my left elbow, my throwing arm, that um, they thought that I, w- I would never throw again. And, you know, I was just stubborn enough to, that I decided, you know what, if, if I can't pitch again, it's going to be something that I figure out or I decide on my own. I'm not just going to let a doctor say that, you know, there's a really good chance you're never going to throw again. So uh, I did all my rehab back at Oklahoma State University. I had a great training staff there that really put in a lot of time for me. I battled through a lot of pain, a lot of setbacks, and um, ended up coming back from that accident, actually throwing the ball about three miles an hour harder. I did so much rehab that I had this little bionic arm <laughs> with all these little muscles popping out. But it was it was very traumatic. I mean, I, I still to this day cannot fully straighten my arm or fully bend my arm, uh, but I got it working enough to, to where I was able to pitch. And did it bother me throughout my career? Absolutely. I mean, there were times that I really had to go through a lot of pain management, a lot of um, conditioning to make sure I simply was able to throw just to dealing with the range of motion issues and, and pain issues. But what I realized is that that accident really was the one thing in my life that taught me, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that softball is what I do. It's not who I am. So when you're 19 years old and, and you lose all of a sudden what you think is your identity, you learn at a very young age that the person that you are is more important than the skill that you have. And uh, it's like uh, I like to say now is that your your will is more important than your skill. So it's, it's basically your your person, your being, those are the sorts of things that set you apart from other people. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of great athletes who just, you know, to be very frank, aren't great people and nobody wants to be around them. You know, uh, I'd rather be the type of person that works hard, might not be the best athlete on the field, but, but the person that when, when someone has a problem or when things are, are, um, someone needs some support that I'm one of the first people they think to, to come to. And I, and I think that that's the one thing that that accident taught me. It was a blessing in my life. And I think that it's, uh, one of those things that I think, uh, you know, happened to me. God kind of put it in my life, that hurdle in my life to uh, to challenge me, I believe. We put, a, uh, in the Responsible Sports Program, put a lot of emphasis on responsible sport coaching, responsible parenting. Um, what, what, what influences did you have from your parents or from coaches early on that helped you develop the, the mental skills that you have now? Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I was really fortunate. My first pitching coach, Betty Zwingraff, was really um, a big believer in relaxation and getting me to understand that pitching is very stressful and that dealing with the stressors are going to be important. She encouraged me to to basically read books, any sort of relaxation type techniques that were going to help me get to a spot that I could kind of diffuse some of the stress that comes with the responsibilities of being a pitcher. The other thing uh, was my father. My dad was really good at at being um, almost a visionary in the sense that he said, you know, Michelle, if you're going to start to pitch, you have to understand that the team gets a win and a loss, and then the pitcher gets a win and a loss. And if you can't emotionally uh, and mentally, if you can't be strong enough to deal with the fact that you could pitch a great game but still 
uh, lose, have a you know, in that game with a loss, that you have to understand that that's part of what comes with that position, and you need to be strong enough uh, mentally and emotionally to uh, embrace that. And um, so my dad was really good with preparing me in that sense. He challenged me a lot. I think he saw the potential that I had and uh, and really challenged me to become a very mentally strong pitcher. Uh, and I have to say, I think that I, I have just enough stubbornness, as I mentioned, about not letting a doctor tell me I'd never pitch again to uh, to having a you know challenge or just even when it seemed like against all odds, we were in a position where we weren't going to be able to win, somehow have enough faith to to be able to pull things out. So I think that uh, I had some really great people influence me at an early age, and I think I had just enough of uh, that personal um, will, determination, and stubbornness that helped propel me on throughout my career. Well, I wish uh, every athlete in this country would have a, a sports parent like your dad. Um, yeah, I was fortunate. My father was great. My mom um, was also very good because she was a buffer. At times when I, my, she felt like my dad was a little bit too intense, my mom would just be there and it, it's okay, honey. You know, everything's going to be fine. So it was kind of that good cop, bad cop. There's got to be a little bit of push, but there's got to be enough um, buffer. I mean, my father, I think, realized what he needed to do to motivate me, but also encourage me, uh, but also not, you know, let me get off the hook on things. That whole responsibility factor as not just as a parent, but also as an athlete you know you mentioned uh, the um, you can pitch a perfect game and still lose uh, how do you deal with I mean there must be some frustration with your teammates if they make errors and you end up losing a game well I think that's the maturity level of learning to pitch is that you realize that uh, you're you're one member of the team and um, no matter how good you are uh, you know, it ultimately comes down to to the team. And, you know, pitching for me at times, I'll be honest, there were times when I thought, I don't know if I want to do this. But then I thought, okay, I'm good enough that it would be really selfish of me not to pitch. It's one of those specific positions, and not everybody can do it. So if I have the ability, you're kind of forced into that role to do it. But um, it, it also helped me embrace the fact that, you know what, the team is more important than, this, than any single individual uh, on the field. And, and, and that challenge in itself, every time you go out, you know, it's like a, a lot of coaches at the elite level, level say that, you know, the game doesn't know who's supposed to win. When you go out there, it's a clean slate every single game. You have to have that um, ability to go out and know that you're you're ready to play ball every single game, every single time you step in that pitching circle. So for me, it was um, it was a lot of different things that kept me uh, moving forward, kept me challenged, and um, and understanding that. It is about the team. It's not just your record as a pitcher, but it's really about the the, the good of the team. And, and you know, and I think when I was younger, I didn't always realize because um, you can be. It's very easy for an athlete to get very focused on just their own statistics or just what they are doing. Um, and I think that once I really learned to realize that, you know, everything in life is just so much better when you share it with other individuals. You could have the best car in the world. You could have the best house in the world. You could have the best things, the best whatever, the best of anything to yourself, but really how great is it when it's only yours? I mean, the best things in life are always considered so much more gratifying when you can share them uh, with other people. And and so that's really what, to me, winning is all about, especially in team sport. I mean, that's why we t- play team sports, because of that relationship. Um, so life is about relationships, uh, whether or not it's teams or 
you know, families or businesses. It's, it, it always comes down to those relationships. And to me, the best of anything in, in life is when it's shared with other people. And, and that is true whether or not it's a, a win or a loss. I've always said I'd rather lose with the right people than win with the wrong people. Let me talk about the 2000 Olympic Games because um, that's a really interesting uh, situation where I think the U.S. team came in, hadn't lost for forever almost, then lost three games in a row and then uh, bounced back. It, one more loss and, and your team is out and you win five in a row and the gold medal. What, what happened? How did that turnabout happen? Uh, love, to, to, love to hear about that. Well, uh, yeah, it was interesting. We went into Sydney as the number one ranked team in the world, hadn't lost in, I think, well over 100 games, and all of a sudden, midway through the tournament, we ended up losing a very uh, long game to Japan, where I actually came in in relief and threw that game. The very next day, had my regular start against China, another very long game. I think the Japan game was maybe 13 innings. The China game was 14 innings. Um, I pitched all 14 innings. In less than 24 hours, I had thrown close to 20 innings. Of, um, of ball, which is almost unheard of. And then uh, the very next day, Lisa Fernandez threw against Australia, and we lost that game. I think that was another 14-inning game. So all of a sudden, um, we had lost three games in a row, and we went from being the, um, the favorites to barely having an opportunity to make the medal round. We had to win our last two games in order to even squeak into the medal round in that fourth position. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we were living – our Olympic dream to living our Olympic nightmare and we had to regroup very quickly as a squad and we had enough I think experience on the uh, on the team that we didn't panic we said okay look so he, so here's what we have to do yeah we, we're, we're not hitting well I mean basically we had some great pitching performances but unfortunately we had a couple of defensive errors that eventually happened because we simply weren't scoring runs had we'd scored runs offensively in a timely fashion those defensive errors would have never happened and we would have won those games so so really it wasn't as much the defense and the pitching as it was we simply weren't pushing some runs across the board we just were struggling offensively so we decided that look okay we need to focus at one one pitch at a time one inning at a time one game at a time we came back and we ended up beating New Zealand and Italy made it into the medal round in fourth fourth position. So a lot of people would be like, whew, you know, this is a good thing. But I think what was awesome and most challenging for us was that we decided, and we were so, um, because we are so competitive as a group, we were like, okay, now the best part of this, making it into the medal rounds, is we get to play every single team that just beat us. We, we get to play, if we're going to win the gold medal, we get to play each one of them again. And so we had our opportunity to play China again, and we beat them. We had the opportunity to play Australia again, and we beat them in the in the uh, bronze medal game. And then we made it to the gold medal game, and we had the opportunity to play Japan again, and we ended up beating them and, and therefore winning our second consecutive gold medal. So it ended up being such an amazing opportunity to go through that experience where you can go from being on a high to being on such a low low to then bouncing right back and not giving up and being on a high high again. So I heard a story about the team going into the shower with your uniforms on. Is that a true story? Yes. We, uh, after we lost to uh, Australia, we were like, oh, that's it. Something's got to change. So I think it was more of just one of those team-building, team-bonding experiences where the, uh, the house in the Olympic Village that we were living in had a shower down, a large shower downstairs, and the whole team uh, just kind of got into the shower fully uniformed, and we, we were like, that's it. We're, cl- we're going to cleanse our 
ourselves and we, everyone got the soap out and the, the, we, we were like basically soaping up in full uniform, like rinsing off all the, all the, the bad, whatever you want to call it, all the bad juju, all the, you know, all the bad stuff, the bad environment, the, just all the bad everything that was kind of following our team around. And um, one of the things that we also joked about where that kind of came about is uh, um, during some of our sports psych uh, uh, dealings, you know, throughout the year, um, we one of the team mottos was if things just don't go right, you got to flush it. So we all then we all went into the the restroom and we just kind of did one big flush where we were like, are we just got to get rid of it? In other words. Embrace the fact that all this stuff had happened. It's challenging and it's diverse, but just get rid of it and now focus forward. And, uh, you know, so we weren't going to let any, any of it linger or carry on or hang over us. And, and I think that's the key in sports is that you, when the bad things happen and when the adversity shows up, you use it to motivate you, to challenge you to be better. But, you know, it can't be like a little ball and chain hanging onto your ankle. You've got to completely get rid of it uh, so that you're able to fully explode and move forward. You know, with uh, Responsible Sports and Positive Coaching Alliance, we actually, we call that a mistake ritual, and we encourage coaches to, to flush mistakes. So, you know, shortstop cleanly fields the ball and then throws the ball over the first baseman's head, uh, looks at the coach, and the coach is making a fl- flushing motion. You know, flush it, next play. It's just a really powerful tool. So um, I want to go back to, to your experience uh, in high school playing basketball and field hockey. Because uh, I talk to a lot of parents, sports parents around the country, and the number one issue that comes up is the pressure their kids get to specialize really early. Uh, did you feel any pressure from coaches or anybody else to specialize in one sport? Um, you know, that's a great question, and it's a really big concern nowadays. I, I, I did not, and you know what, even if I would have, I, w- I probably would not have. I just feel like there's enough hours in the day that if you want to play other sports, you play those other sports, but then you still do your homework after field hockey, after basketball. Um, it's all about uh, balance. It's all about time management, and I really believe that there is enough time in the day to be able to do um, the things that you want to do. Now, granted, does uh, going to the movies or going to uh, sleepovers or parties or whatever it might, does something have to give? Yeah, it definitely does, and that's where it comes to um, prioritizing and figuring out what's important in your life. But for me, those other sports were important. I love the uh, athletic abilities that they taught me. Field hockey gave me fitness. It gave me the ability to learn to um, to drive off of either leg, weak side, strong side. Basketball gave me the ability to stop, start quickly. Um, you know, it built strength. It built endurance. Uh, and all those things helped me as I developed into a better softball player as well. I think a big part of my softball success was not just, as I mentioned, it wasn't just my ability on the field. It was my mental um, prowess, but it was also my fitness as well. I probably was one of the hardest athletes that trained off the field. I didn't really talk about it a lot. I just did it on my own, and um, and that's why to this day I still do a lot of cycling, training, triathlon, stuff like that, because I believe in just overall fitness. And um, so I don't think you have to specialize. I think that there's enough, um, as I mentioned, enough hours in the day that these, these kids should be able to play sports that they love. Again, fall in love with the sports. Uh, if you do too much of one thing, I just think the kids nowadays burn out, and that's just too much pressure for a young athlete to have to deal with. So if a, if a sports parent came to you and said, you know, my daughter just said she wants to quit all her other sports, all her other extracurricular activities, to focus exclusively on softball, what would you say to that parent? Well, you know, I think each individual is different. I think it's hard to cookie cut everybody. So if you have a kid who just simply doesn't really love, um, say, soccer and basketball, that she's 
she's been just kind of playing and she wants to focus on softball. Um, if she's going to play fall ball and, um, and then maybe say she's going to train with a fitness coach in the winter and then play, you know, get ready for a softball season in the spring. I think it really depends on each individual. I, I, I would probably encourage her to, to play at least one of the two sports and not just quit everything just to continue to stay uh, fit and not just one dimensional. Um, but I think each situation is a little bit different. I don't think it's necessary that you have to do that in order to become an elite athlete. I, I, not even close to that. I, I don't think you have to quit other sports in order to focus on an, any one sport. Um, I, I like the fact that other sports add other dimensions to your well-roundedness as an athlete. And I think that's what needs to be considered. So I don't think um, in all situations that it's a, uh, it's a good thing for people to, uh, to quit sports. I would probably encourage that not to happen. I mean, maybe cut back a little bit on other sports, maybe the extra training so you can focus on your softball, um, you know, after those practices are over. But uh, I, I don't think that, I don't think we need to make kids quit other sports. Um, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, you, t- you talked a lot about, you know, control, self-control, et cetera, and maturity. Um, what could a responsible court, uh, responsible coach tell players when they're feeling frustrated with an umpire's calls? Well, I think that it's important to control the controllables. I think it's important for coaches to tell kids that there are some things on the field you can control and there are some things on the field you can't control. And that's kind of what my father had said to me as well when he said, you know, you're going to have to understand, Michelle, there's only so many things you can control when you're pitching and sometimes you're going to get the win and sometimes you're going to get the loss. And, you know, it's the same thing that I think every kid on that field needs to understand that you cannot control what the umpire is going to call. You can control the ball when it's in your hand. You can control the at that, um, uh, you know, whether or not you hit the ball or not uh, before it gets to the, to the catcher and the umpire has to make a call. So I think that learning to control the controllables is going to be very important. And the controllables, basically, your your attitude, your effort, and your energy. Everybody controls that every day they step out on the field. Um, they can't control the umpires. They can't control the uh, opposition. And you can't even control your teammates, um, you know, once the ball is hit to them or the ball is out of your hand. So I think just focusing on what you're able to have control of is what's going to be most important and all the other stuff you just have to let it go you got to trust that people are going to um, make the right calls and do the right things and sometimes the calls are going to go for you and sometimes they're going to go against you yeah that that seems like a great life lesson um you know control the uncontrollable i'm sorry control the controllables not just in sports but in life are, are there specific life lessons you feel you learned from being a competitive athlete that you use in your life outside of softball? Um, yeah, definitely. I think that um, you have to focus on you have to focus on the person I think that you are. Because again, I think that people are magnetic and and are energized and um, drawn to people in a leadership capacity where. Uh, you, you, you emit a positive energy, you know, and you have to remember that, you know, leadership is voluntary. People, people will follow really natural born leaders. Management is not management is forced upon you. Okay. You're told at work who your manager is going to be, but when it comes to leadership type individuals and roles, you know, it's basically who you choose to follow. So I think that, you know, you have to think of yourself as who do, who do I want to be? I want to be the type of person that people are energized by, who are mag, magnetized by. They want to be in that environment with you. And, and it can be little things just from your energy, by smiling, by, by thinking about a positive um, 
a, a positive part of your being, of your life, because that energy is emitted. I mean, if you think about everything, every test in our body, it, it can all be measured on on electric waves and, and stuff like that. So energy and, and, and what we emit is a very, very huge part of who we are as beings. And I think sometimes people forget that. They put out all this negative energy and they repel people instead of, um, you know, bring people to them. So I think that a lot of being positive is just your, your self-awareness of how other people are relating to you. Wow, that's great. Now, you spent a lot of time in Japan. Uh, you're still playing in Japan, I think. I actually retired just a little bit ago, and um, but I did love it there. I played over there 16 years, and um, I, I actually won eight championships and eight MVPs over there, and I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I Sometimes I can't believe I actually played there 16 years because <laughs> I think that, wow, that's a long time. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if, um, I mean, certainly the culture of, uh, in Japan is different than the culture in the United States, um, and I wonder if all the things you learned about life from softball helped you adjust to living in Japan? Well, it definitely did. And there's a lot of things that living in Japan helped me um, adapt on to on the softball field. And I think uh, probably one of the main things I was just talking about is the fact that, you know, Japan is a nation that's about the size of California with half the population in the U.S. So it'd be like everybody west of the Mississippi moving into California. So you can imagine how highly um, populated and densely populated a, a lot of the cities are. And so basically what it taught me over there is that the Japanese, even though I stood out and it was very obvious that I was not Japanese, it taught me that when you're living in that much of a densely populated area, how your actions affect other people. The Japanese are keenly aware of how they impact other people. And as Americans, that's a complete opposite of us. We are so um, focused on being individuals and, and unique and you know, stand, sticking out that we forget how our actions sometimes affect other people. And um, so I think the big thing for me is it just made me more aware of myself, my actions, my energies, my attitudes, and, and the uh, impact an effect that I can have on other people. And when you learn to take responsibility for those that part of your life, you start to realize that, wow, I can have a positive impact on people or I can have a negative impact on people. And when you start realizing that those the, the times that you have a positive impact on people, it ends up making you feel a lot better as a person, all of a sudden I think the joy in your life starts to grow um, because you realize that you know, it's, it's a lot nicer to be part of something bigger than just you as an individual. You know, Michelle, I could talk and listen to you forever. I want to ask you one last question. Um, can you talk a little bit about where softball now stands as an Olympic sport? Why do you think it was dropped? What does the future hold for, for softball? In sure. I think, unfortunately, there was a lot of misunderstanding of really how great our sport is. So a lot of the IOC members from the European um, Union, the European smaller countries, didn't quite understand that the uniqueness of softball, that we're not just women's baseball. So I think some of the issues that baseball had, unfortunately, got lumped into softball and we got kind of pulled out um, of the Olympic program. I think that we have the opportunity to get back into the Olympics, but I think that the tops of both baseball and softball are going to have to get together and figure out what's right for the sport. Do we join as one sport and try to go in as one sport, or do we stay separate and try to go in as two sports? Do we try to bring men's fast-pitch softball in with us? There are some different um, opportunities that we have, but I think there needs to be a strategy long-term moving forward and figuring out how do we grow the sport around the world, how do we bring awareness to other IOC members that are going to be making that decision, and, um, and really what's for the good of the sport. Are we 
as I mentioned, are, do we do we pair up with with Major League Baseball? Hopefully, they get their ducks in a row and they get the on um, the issues that they've had with the IOC under control, some of the doping issues, and the best players not being available, all those type of things that the IOC wants from Major League Baseball, um, and get Major League Baseball realizing that that baseball and softball in the Olympics is a good thing and it's something worth having. So, unfortunately for us, um, there are some big hurdles that we have ahead of us, but I think we're capable of proving that we are a great sport. We are growing around the world. Um, a lot of the USA Softball and the ASA are, are really sending out coaches around the world to grow the sport, which I think is a great thing. I think that all of the talk of how Team USA dominated, when you really look at the results of the four Olympic games, um, we didn't dominate. We lost, game, we lost the games in Atlanta. We almost lost in Sydney. We, you know, as I talked about, we lost those three games in a row. We barely won the gold medal there. We did dominate in Athens, but I think it was a special set of circumstances and the fact that the sport, we just moved back to 43 feet. The rest of the world was not prepared for that, um, and, and that was actually an advantage for Team USA in Athens. But then look what happened in Beijing. Uh, Yukiko Ueno in Japan ended up beating and upsetting Team USA in the gold medal game. And um, so it just shows that every Olympics was extremely competitive. The U.S. didn't just walk in and walk out with the gold medal. Um, so I think if we have the opportunity to get the right leaders in position in our sport, uh, hopefully we'll be back on the Olympic program. Uh, we have another shot coming up in a couple of years in 2013 for 2020, but unfortunately we've lost a, a generation of kids who wanted to live their Olympic dream and, and, and won't be able to. But they can still represent Team USA in various other great events like the World Cup of Softball and World Championships, and USA Softball and the ASA are doing a great job of, of really trying to promote those events and, and get those to be premier events, um, even though we had, we're not on the Olympic program. So I, I lied. I have one more question. What's next for you now? Well, I've been doing a lot of commentating for ESPN. I enjoy that. I do a lot of camps and clinics for young athletes, also for um, for parents and coaches that want to coach their kids. I'm starting to do more motivational speaking to uh, corporate America. So I do. I've, I've got a lot of irons in the fire. I think for me, it's just about finding myself in an environment where I can positively affect people, and um, that's where I think I have the most joy in my life. Michelle, thank you so much. Um, the, all of the, the people who listen to this Responsible Sports uh, podcast, the parents, coaches, youth sports leaders, athletes are going to benefit from it, and I have really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be involved with you guys. To learn more about Responsible Sports, including downloading valuable tools on how you can help youth athletes stay positive in youth sports, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music. Music.